I don't care what they think about me. I care that they do think critically about what I'm saying. I want them to examine critically what I'm saying. It's a pink suit. Remember that? Chapter four, pink suits. It's a metaphor. Try it on to see what you think because it's unusual, right? Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Program Life Podcast, where we want our listeners, guests, and myself to learn something new. Every week, I bring in a guest who has a passion for topics related to productivity or mental health. And our guest on this episode today is Donald James, who is the author of a book called Manners Will Take You Where Brains and Money Won't Wisdom from Mama in 35 Years at NASA. He decided to make his career at NASA retiring in 2017. And I'm really excited for you guys to listen to this episode because this is a really special one and a long one. And to be honest, guys, you guys got to trust me on this. It's really worth it. Like, I truly learned something that no other productivity book or YouTuber has ever taught me. So real quick, before this episode starts, if you're new here, I upload every week on Saturday morning EST, as well as put out extra content on my blog, such as my email newsletter and key takeaways on each episode. So if you want to get those goodies, head over to my website as well, which is programlife.org. Also, if it, it, w- it would be really great if you could head over and click that subscribe or follow button right now. Um, on whichever platform you're using you know it only takes a second and also you'll also be notified of all the great content that i provide you guys and also please just leave a rating down below it helps support the show and it only takes a few seconds you can also follow me on instagram yogesh prabhu 2 and also the program life instagram page program underscore life underscore and also twitter yogesh prabhu 03 so that's enough plugging for me sit back relax and enjoy the show all right. So, um, Donald, I'm really excited to have you on the show as you're the author of a book called Manners. Manners will take you where brains and money won't. Wisdom from Mama and 35 Years at NASA. The book was released in February 2021 and also inspired. Um, also, you were inspired by overwhelming reaction to the 1986 Space Shuttle Challenger tragedy tragedy and you decided to make your career at nasa retiring in 2017 and you also mentor students and early career professionals so before i get into these questions that i have for you today i would first like you to um i would first like to thank you actually yeah first thank you for coming on to the show and thank you for your time you're very welcome, Yogesh, and um, it's truly my honor to uh, share with you and the listeners uh, my thoughts on uh, both my career and what I wrote in Manners, and so I'm appreciative of this opportunity. Yeah, for sure. And let's just dive into the first question. So could you just tell us briefly how you got to where you are now and also, what are some key lessons or like some brief key lessons that you learned on your journey? Yeah, so I spent 35 years at the space agency, the American Space Agency, NASA. And as you indicated, uh, when I began my career, 
at NASA. I wasn't sure I wanted to stay there, but uh, the events in 1986 with the space shuttle exploding, killing the seven astronauts, including the teacher that was on the shuttle, really had an impact on me both personally and then ultimately from a career standpoint. And I do write about this in the book. And so Mm -hmm. I basically discovered through that experience that um, many teachers and students were very much impacted by the loss of the shuttle and felt, um, you know, close to the program. And there was just an outpouring of of grief and love and, and, and in many respects. And so when I realized that um, because of where I worked, that we could have an impact on students uh, positively, even coming out of a tragedy like this, I really wanted to make my career there. And so um, I, I made that decision right in 1986 that I wasn't going to leave. I was going to stay. And ultimately, um, I was fortunate enough to become the head of all of NASA's education programs. Uh, and th- that was in 2014. And I did that until I retired in 2017. And so the, the, the thing that really um, got me thinking about the Manners book, uh, in a nutshell, was a s- speech that I was giving to a group of our summer interns two months after I retired. And a uh, young man asked me, you know, well, what, you know, given what you've learned in life, you know, if you could go back and talk to your younger self, you know, what would you tell your younger self about having a successful career? And I gave that some thought and I realized that it wasn't, um, you know, my intelligence. And although I think I'm really reasonably smart, I'm certainly not as <laughs> smart as a lot of people at NASA, that's for sure. You know, I was a I was a decent student, but I was not at the top of the class. Um, so it certainly wasn't that. It was really the things I learned from my mom about manners, uh, broadly speaking, that I felt um, that really helped me greatly. And so um, after I retired and thinking about what that young man said, I felt compelled to give a long, a longer answer to his question. And that ultimately became the book. And so I'm just very grateful that I have this opportunity to share the things that I've learned. And Mm -hmm. I, I put this out in the world, uh, for young people, especially students and early career professionals Mm -hmm. to consider looking at the world through the lens of manners to see if that can be helpful to them. So I feel very fortunate to be in a position to do that. Yeah, that's great. Like what you've been doing is really amazing. And I've read your book and you just mentioned like that you get, you got the idea of manners and things from all from your mom. So how did yeah. you come across the ideology of, of manners? Like, was it all from your mom or did you make some, um, you know, make some implementations by yourself or like, how did yeah. you get around writing this book? That's great. Uh, so the book was initially inspired by what my mother always taught my brother and me, um, which is the title of the book. She always used to say, you know, it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how rich you are. You know, if you're going to make a difference, a positive difference in the world and go places, you need to have good manners. Or She always used to say something to that effect. 
But as I began to think more critically about what I wanted to offer um, uh, young people as far as what I've learned, the book became a synthesis of three things. Uh, of course, it was rooted in, you know, my mother's wisdom. That's why the subtitle is called Wisdom from Mama. You know, that's my mother and the things I learned from her. Mm-hmm. It's also a part, it's also comes from my experience working at NASA from the time I started in 1982 until I retired in 2017. The things that I observed, my experiences. And then the third leg is, is the training that I had. Um, I did a lot of training in my NASA career. I did a lot of training both inside NASA and outside NASA. And I also like to read, and I read a lot of books about, you know, management and leadership um, because I aspire to be a good manager and a good leader. And so the book really uh, synthesizes all three of those things. Um, and so that's that's really the basis of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess in this, like, just going onto the topic of manners now, um, in this era of technology, you know, and like in our generation right now, we are nagged a lot by our parents, and it seems like a nuisance that. Um, we're usually nagged about having good manners and to behave and to think before we act. And it's almost a nuisance like that. And manners seem like such a small thing and it doesn't really matter. So in your opinion, what are manners? And could you give us like a brief explanation of, you know, what your ideology of manners are and um, yeah. And, you know, having reading your book, it's, you say that it's a much more broader and widespread topic right. than you think it is. Right. So the first thing that I suggest to people to think about with respect to the term manners is that it's more than just politeness and and etiquette, you know, please and thank you or yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, some of which can be sound artificial and sound like an act that people are putting on. And I'm, I'm a big believer in authenticity in our interactions. And so um, I've actually have had the experience of being around people who are very extremely polite sounding and, you know, said very nice things to me and were, you know, all of the typical things that you would imagine a Mm -hmm. very mannerly person would say. But at the same time, I felt that that person wasn't being very authentic. And uh, I'm thinking of an example, you know, where um, a young man was acting this way to me. He was uh, uh, at the door of a hotel that I was coming to and and he was just really, you know, over the top and hello, sir, how are you? And welcome. And just so good <laughs> to see you, sir. And he was being very nice and pleased and thinking mm-hmm. I help you. And then the thing that struck me, Yogesh, is that when I when I got to the to the desk to check in and I, you know, tipped the young man and he went away, I had this thought that I bet he doesn't act like this at home or with his friends. And that's what I mean about authenticity is that there was a disconnect to me between how he was showing up to me and how I believed he showed up 
every day. And I think there's a way of being well-mannered without uh, putting on an act called I'm, I have good manners. So to me, manners is much broader and than just the, the niceties of life. It's really the entire way we show up in the world. It's how we listen. It's how we see. It's how we speak. It's our body language. You know, many people don't appreciate that our, our nonverbal communications often say more about ourselves than our verbal communications. I mean, just ask yourself this question. Have you ever, like, walked down the street or been in the company of people and you've seen somebody, and even though you haven't exchanged any words, you have a reaction like, wow, they seem upset or they seem angry or they seem arrogant or they seem mm. whatever. And you've never talked to them. So you don't, you know, you have these judgments about people based on nonverbal communication. So that's mm-hmm. a very big part of our manner. So our manner is the manner in which we present ourselves in the world. It's the manner in which we show up. And that manner is comprised of a lot of elements, including the element of what I would say where we're coming from, like the thoughts we have and the feelings we have and the energy we have, because our body often reflects that, right? So if I wake Mm. up, you know, and I have, I had a headache and I was in a bad mood and I, you know, I was just grumbling or whatever. And even though in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm getting ready to talk to Yogesh on this podcast and I want to put on my best behavior because he's a really cool guy. And I'm, I'm like pretending that I'm going to really do a great job, but my body is, you know, miserable. Uh, my body is going to reveal my secret in some way. Mm-hmm. Now, the person observing me may not necessarily know what it is, but they may say, ah, something seems off. You know, I just don't get that. And I actually tell a story in the book about a couple that uh, we know very well who were, it, it was like this. We went to have dinner with them. And, you know, we did the obligatory, hi, how are you? Nice to see you. And at one point I looked at the woman and I said, are you, are you doing okay? She says, yeah, I'm doing fine. And I looked at her again and I said, really? And then she stopped and she looked at me and she goes, no. And that was the end of the conversation. Now, what is it about that story that's interesting? Is What's interesting is that what I know about this couple is that they suffered the tragic loss of their son who died of cancer. And so this is a couple who outlived one of their children, which is something that most parents live in fear of because nobody wants to outlive their own children. And so that's what I mean is that her body and her manner said she wasn't okay. But she verbalized, when I asked her, how are you? She said, I'm fine. That was her first reaction. But there was a disconnect between what I heard and what I felt and what I experienced. So what I'm suggesting is that experience that I was observing and experiencing is the authentic manner. And so I am asking people to consider this as they go through the world, because if you look at the world through that lens and you work on cultivating a kind of manner where people 
want to, you know, they want to help you. They want to do things for you. They just want to be connected to you in whatever form, because there are people who are like that. I mean, I've been around people where I'm like, wow, I don't really want to be around those people. Or I've been around people like, well, I really like to be around those people. I'll give you another really quick story. Some uh, friends of ours um, that we know, wonderful people. We really like them. We spend a lot of time socializing them. But they have one of the people in the couple has kind of a manner about them that is, is hard to I mean, I can be very judgmental, and I have, and like I would just characterize this manner as someone who's a little bit controlling and kind of particular, and all of this. And I remember they were they were going to the um, airport, and we were taking them to the airport as a favor. And I remember after we dropped them off, I turned to my wife and I said, "You know." I don't ever want to travel with these people. <laughs> and, you know, it was kind of a harsh thing to say. The more I thought about it, I thought, well, maybe that was a little overdone, you know, and maybe I need to just learn how to be with people that, you know, are not like me, whatever. But that was my gut reaction. And I was reacting to the person's manner. So manner is expansive. It's, it's, it's as a, from an individual perspective, it's just, it's more than just learning the right combination of, of words and things to say to people so that, you know, you feel like you're quote unquote doing the right thing. I hope that's helpful, but that's, Mm -hmm. that's what I mean by manner. And so to kind of close out this particular question, Yogesh, with respect to uh, people and where they are in their life cycle, whether they're young, middle-aged or whatever, you know, my invitation is, you know, for people to look at this and try to apply it, you know, to their lives. And so maybe some of the terminology that I use is not something that a younger person might use, but I think the principles are, are common. I'm not sure there's a lot of people that enjoy being around arrogant, you know, crazy people that, you know, think that, you know, you know, mm-hmm. their you know what doesn't stink and the sun revolves around them. And, you know, maybe some people like that. And I think there are people that, that, are, that are like that. But for the most part, I think people want to be respected. I think people want to be heard. I think people enjoy people who are empathetic. I think people like when others are very curious about them and they want to know about their background mm-hmm. and interests, right? Um, and so, you just have to look and see, you know, what works, you know, for you. And I've had examples of what works for me and doesn't work for me. And I think it all comes down to people's manner. Usually, mostly it comes out of people's manner. Yeah, that was a great explanation. I was really interested in the idea of like, authenticity, like you mentioned, authenticity of manners. And it's like, when sometimes we, I mean, I'm pretty sure this relates to everyone. And it's that sometimes when we meet new people, when we go out, we kind of just put out like an image of ourselves. We're not really connected with our true selves because we don't really want to show our true selves. And you mentioned in the book, I think that you love showing your true self or your real self yeah. to other people. Mm-hmm. So how do we like, how do we start doing that? How do we like start to connect, you know, our manner, manners and our body together and, you know, start to connect with other people with our real selves? Well, the what I suggest as a way of approaching this, because it's not necessarily easy to do, 
And I'm not a trained therapist or psychologist and or sociologist, so I want to be clear to any listener that that I don't have any training in this particular area when it comes to behavior modification. What I will say that I personally trust, and this is um, part of the chapter that I wrote on who's on your team, is if you surround yourself with people that you have invited to be part of your support network. And I put a framework in the book for the categories of people that I suggest you cultivate for this relationship. And the key relationship is not necessarily just your friend or your family that, you know, always tells you how wonderful you are and things like that is to give them permission to share with you how they see you and how they see you showing up in the world. Now, it doesn't matter whether they're right or wrong or not, but this is just their impression. And if you have enough people in your life that, you know, are that you trust to do this, you begin to to paint a picture. So the metaphor that I like to use is this. Uh, and I tell the story in the book of when I first learned how to interview. And I was preparing to uh, apply to a program, which ultimately got me into NASA. And at the university I attended, I had to go through Uh, some application process. And part of that process included a mock interview. And during the mock interview, which means it's a simulation, it's not the real interview, they videotaped us during the interview. And uh, when I was finished, uh, I thought I did very well. And, you know, I was pretty pleased with my performance. And then I saw the video of my performance and I was in absolute shock. Mm. Why was I in shock? Because I didn't notice how my manners were. I didn't notice how I showed up in the interview. For example, I realized that I, I practically interviewed my notebook because I didn't put my head up and look and make eye contact with the interviews. I Mm -hmm. filled in a lot of, of empty space in my communications with words that were not very helpful and purposeful. I call it verbal shotgunning, where I I keep throwing out words, hoping that the right combination of words would be good. So I learned a lot from this. And so the takeaway is I had an external source. In this case, it was a video of my interviewing combined with a professional coach who guided me through the critique in the video to point out, and I, the person, the coach didn't actually have to point anything out. I could see for myself what was obvious, you know, and so I was able to make corrections. So by the time I got to the real interview, I was a much different person. And so the invitation is to figure out how to cultivate your manners is you, you can't rely on your own judgment to see things that other people can see. Now, you don't have to accept everything anybody tells you, and sometimes you have to question people's motivations. But if you trust the people that you're with and and, and they're willing to tell you the truth, and I'm talking about truths that could get very personal and can be very, very sensitive. You know, for example, 
I had colleagues at NASA for whom English was not their first language. And the fact of the matter is they were brilliant scientists or engineers, but when they presented into a meeting, I know for a fact that many people in the meeting were somewhat judgmental about their their presentation because they they couldn't relate to how they spoke. And so what I would say to that scientist or engineer is you need to be aware of this fact, of this possibility. Let me put it that way, of this possibility Mm -hmm. that when you present just because of your accent, because of how you use the English language, you might be viewed differently than somebody else who speaks in a different way. Now, some people might be offended by that and says, oh, well, that shouldn't have anything to do with my competence. And I've not done so many research papers. I said, yes, you're a very accomplished scientist. You've been published. You've been peer reviewed. I'm just saying that from a manners matter, just be aware of that possibility. So how do you handle that? Well, you might want to, you know, be humorous about certain things, or you might want to uh, repeat certain, you know, very important points you want to make. And in some cases, I even had an economics professor in, in college who said, I know that my accent is difficult for some people to follow. So therefore, I want you to know, I'm going to repeat a lot of concepts to make sure you get it. I never forgot mm-hmm. that because that economics professor didn't care about you know, the fact that he knew that his English wasn't, you know, you know, fluent in, in uh, from the United States perspective, but his commitment to making sure that we understood the economic principles was greater than his concern about whether or not people could understand him or not. So he, mm-hmm. he did that. So um, it's the kind of thing where, you know, uh, I have coached people in my organization who tend to be quieter and more introverted to say, um, you need to be aware that because you don't speak up a lot in meetings, other people might think that you don't have anything valuable to offer. And I think you have a lot of valuable things to offer. And is there a way we can work on making sure you have a contribution? So conversely, as a leader, what I did often is that if I... I made sure this was about including people. I made sure that if people didn't speak up, I would give them an opportunity to weigh in on a topic. And oftentimes they did. And oftentimes what they shared was very, very important. So it's a practice. And I think it starts with getting external help. The other thing is, and and there's lots of different things you can do, but the other thing that I like to suggest to people, and this is pretty, uh, I don't think this is hard, is just to be a big observer in interactions with other people. So if you're with a group of your friends, for one time only, just decide, you're just going to be very curious about how the dialogue and the communications go. So you just watch who talks, who doesn't talk, what do they say, how does the dialogue evolve. And you're you're participating, but you're not you know, you're not jumping in with your opinions and thoughts and, you know, going back and forth. You're kind of more of the observer uh, and do it in a way that doesn't seem obvious. Like they're saying, Yogesh, what's up with you? You're just sitting there nodding your head and not saying anything. <laughs> you know, it's more that you're paying attention. You're developing the skill of awareness, right? I often do this when I look at people who are talking and say, okay, who wants something in this dialogue? 
Who has power in this exchange? What is the messages that they're sending with their body? Are they doing power posing or are they doing weak posing? I try to, and it's sort of like a game I played. I actually learned that from my dad. We used to have this game when we would travel. My dad was in the foreign service. We traveled a lot and we would just, he would point out people sitting at another table and says, what do you think their profession is? What do you think they're doing? And so he would just have us observe the people to try to guess these things. So he was teaching me the power of observation, the power of being aware. And it turns mm-hmm. out you, you really learn an awful lot from people by just watching them. So those are two things that I would suggest. Get support, external support, and develop your sense of awareness and observation. Mm, yeah, that's that's actually a really great advice. And I guess my next question is, in, in the book you do mention in the introduction that everyone has a view about the right way to be um, or what good behavior is or what is acceptable at home, school, or workplace. And this idea kind of relates to a concept in the book of the elephant in the brain, where they mentioned that we have a set of social norms that keep us consistent and behave. So could you explain how do we define what good manners are? And since good manners can mean differently to different people, how can we actually know we're doing the right thing or if we're actually having good manners? Yeah, so uh, that's an outstanding question because I don't necessarily think it's universal. Um, Mm. The example that I gave in the book was a time I was at an international conference in Germany and I, uh, the NASA booth uh, where I was uh, attending or I was working uh, was next to a booth from the United Arab Emirates in the Middle East and they were hosting the next conference that this conference was. In fact, that particular conference is happening this October because it was postponed from the pandemic from last year. And we at NASA had done, and I was very proud of this, some education partnerships with the UAE. We had students come from the country to be interns at our facility, and I was happy to be a part of uh, developing that international collaboration. And so I wanted to talk to the people in the booth from the UAE about, you know, their program they were going to have. Of course, we didn't know about the pandemic at the time. This was uh, fall of 2019. And I, I wanted to, to see about you know, supporting them and, you know, telling them about our experience with the students. And so I, uh, there were two women sitting at the front desk and, you know, I was talking to the women and at the end of the conversation, the conversation went really great. I intuitively and without thinking thrust my hand out to shake their hands to thank them for their time. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the women obliged and another one didn't. She withdrew her hand and put it over her chest. And I realized immediately what had happened. These were two Muslim women. I assume so because they were both wearing jobs. And I knew from my own learning that most Muslim women, to the best of my knowledge, don't touch a man to whom they are not married or related. And mm. I I say in the book that, you know, you can be forgiven. So this gets into the question of what's good manners and what's right and wrong, right? So you could say, well, you're at an international conference and, you know, this is a Western area and, you know, 
it's good manners to offer your hand and everything, but um, I knew better. And so I believe that uh, good manners is paying attention to respect uh, customs and traditions that people may have. And even though I didn't feel judged by the women that had I just thought about it for a second, I probably would not have intuitively stuck my hand out to shake their hand. Mm -hmm. So this is an example where I think if you're paying attention and you're aware and you're learning about different cultures and different customs, you can adapt appropriately to, at the very minimum, demonstrate respect. So here's what I mean by that. If I had intuitively not stuck my hand out and I just put my hand on my chest or thanked them, or if I were India, if I were to put my hands together, you know, like in a prayer form, I believe what it says is, oh, this person has paid attention to our culture and traditions and as a sign of respect is showing that. Not that I necessarily do that all the time with people, but I've, I've learned to adapt and, and be respectful. So, mm. so this can be difficult, right? Because you, if you go to different countries and even within the United States, I mean, there's different parts of the United States that have different traditions and customs. Mm-hmm. Um, the people in the Southern part of the United States speak a certain way and use certain terms that I probably wouldn't use in other parts of the States. So that's what I mean about paying attention and being aware of this. So, What's right or wrong or what's good or bad is determined by the environment that you're in, the place that you're in, and the people that you're addressing. And if you don't know, you don't know. I mean, it's okay to not um, to not be aware of that. But what I would say what would be bad manners, if I were the type of person that I put my hand out and a person withdrew my hand, is to then have a judgment, oh, they must be arrogant or, you know, I, I can't mm. believe that they think that their tradition is more important than my tradition. And, you know, they're mm-hmm. in a Western country, so they should do what I do. I would say that's the incorrect reaction to something like that. Mm. Um, so it's, um, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing that you just have to pay attention to and learn um, and, and be aware of your own behaviors that may or may not work. Um, as a male, I can assure you I've had to learn a lot of lessons about things that I have done that I wasn't even aware of that may have put women at a feeling of, of um, a defense or they're you're nervous because of you know how close I was or how expressive I was or some of the terminology that I've used, you know, like calling somebody a sweetie or a honey or something like that, a term of endearment that I would say, hey, I was just, you know, having a term of endearment and I don't mean anything by it. Whereas the truth is it may may make the woman that I'm speaking to feel, you know, inferior or less than. And so, you know, learning those things, uh, you know, is important. And so, um, and there's lots of books that I would just encourage people to read a lot of different books. You know, that's what I meant by there's no one right way. I mean, it's you just have to to pay attention a lot and to see, you know, what really works. Because I can assure you that if you don't have good manners and and, and you do things that, you know, could be considered very offensive, it could have consequences, I mean, it, I, I mean, I, I tell the story about 
you know, the man that flew to Chicago for a job interview for a CEO of a company, and he was meeting with a board member or whoever it was. I read this in a book, so I believe this is actually a true story, but this is secondhand from a book that I read. And and because of the nature of the meeting, I mean, they both flew to a neutral place, you know, just for a day for this interview. Uh, because it was a big job, you know, that's what they did. And in the middle of the discussion, the person being interviewed's phone went off and he's turned to the interviewer and said, oh, I'm really sorry. This is important. I got to take this and just take me a second. And he took the call. And by the time he turned around and went back to the table, the other guy put his napkin down and said, this interview is over. We, we have nothing further to discuss. And he walked away. And so what happened is, you know, he, he did the wrong thing. He shouldn't have taken the call where a lot of people mm. think, well, you know, well, what if it was important? You know, what if my mom is dying or whatever it is? And I'm like, you know, well, um, that's a nice reason, but uh, I think for a half an hour, an hour, um, if your mom is dying, it may not make a difference, but I, you know, or there's a different way of handling it. So at the beginning of the interview, you'd say, I really apologize, but my mother, who is in hospice, um, may be close to death and she lives, um, you know, in whatever. And so with your permission, I'm going to have my phone on in case I'm called to come back, uh, because that is more important than whether or not you get the job. But you see, he, the person could have handled it by saying up front, what the possibility is. And then I, as the interviewer might say, Oh man, I'm really sorry to hear that. Of course, no problem. But he didn't say anything. He just took the call. So he has no idea what the call is about. He never got the job. So there's a lot of little things like that, that can happen that can just ruin it, you know, for, you know, mm. for an interview, for example. And you just need to learn these things because, you know, it, you, and a lot of times you don't even know whether or not what you did or didn't do cause you to get a job or didn't get a job or to get a date or didn't get a date or to get, you know, invited to the club or not get in. You don't know because they won't tell you, right? Mm, they won't tell yeah. you. Yeah. That's the difficult thing about manners. And so like speaking about learning manners, I wanted to come up into the, this next question is how do we actually develop like these good manners and how do we like make it as a habit almost and implement them into our lives? Yeah, it's practice. You have to practice. And I suggest practicing with very concrete and specific things. For example, um, and I learned this from my mother, my mother was a stickler for sending people handwritten thank you notes if you were gifted. So I would say, you know, you can start with going forward. If someone gives you a gift, if someone takes you to dinner, if someone does something very nice for you, get out a note card and a pen and handwrite a thank you note and address it and stamp it and put it in the mail. Because the recipient, particularly in this day and age of electronics, now knows that you went to some effort to express your appreciation. Now, that's not to say that you can't express your appreciation electronically. I'm saying that there that the fact that you would take the time to do this often speaks volumes. I have literally had people, Yogesh, who thanked me for sending them thank you notes because they were mm. so blown away that I would actually do that. And I was <laughs> like, 
well, you don't have to thank me for sending me thank you. I'm very appreciative of this. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother always insisted that if someone does something nice for you or says something nice, that the proper answer is you're welcome. You don't need to thank them back. You know, well, thank you. It's sort of like you're going to one-upmanship because it, mm. it it tends to discount the value of their original appreciation, right? You know, if I said, Yogesh, you know, I just really appreciate who you are. I just was very meaningful to talk to you. And then your first instinct to reaction is, well, Donald, I really appreciate you. You're really cool. <laughs> well, I feel like you didn't really let it in, right? Mm. Like that you didn't say, wow, you're welcome. You're welcome. Means that 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 you know you just leave it at that. I mean, it can be uncomfortable, but you've seen this in interactions, right? You go up to your friends and he says, "Hey, Joe, how are you doing? I'm fine. How are you?" It's like they didn't even get a chance to let it in and say, mm. "Yeah, I'm I'm doing good today." You know, I appreciate that. And then it, it doesn't mean you have to equal somebody else. You know, like if someone says, you know, oh man, I'm having a bad day. Why are you having a bad day? I found out my good friend just got hurt in a car crash. He goes, oh yeah, I had a good friend that got hurt in a car crash too. You (laughs) see what that does? It sort of discounts your original expression. Like, well, Mm. he had to, you had to say about your friend who got hurt. And so he had to say about his friend and all that stuff rather than just letting it in. So one thing you could do is just if someone communicates to you, whether they're expressing gratitude or appreciation or something, just let it in. You know, mm. um, I've watched the news a lot and I find this really funny is the newscaster will have a guest on the news program. And at the end, the newscaster will thank the person. So thank you very much for coming on and explaining this. And 99.9% of the time, the guest's response is, thank you. Whereas the appropriate response is, you're welcome. Right? You're welcome. You're welcome. I mean, just allow the gratitude, give the gift uh, to somebody else for them to be able to express gratitude to you rather than just turning it around and saying, well, I'm going to give the thanks back to you. So that's not something you can practice. Um, you can, I, I, there's lots of books about, you know, manners and behavior. I'm a big, big fan of body language. I've learned that body language says a lot about your manner and often your intentions. So uh, when you're speaking to somebody, watch how your body is positioned. Because what will happen is that if you're not interested in talking to the person, let's say someone approaches you and you'd rather talk to somebody else that looks cooler than you are or whatever, mm-hmm. often your body will tell the truth because your feet will be pointed in a way and your body will be pointed in a way like, I just, I want to leave and I want to get out. And th- this is kind of mm-hmm. funny because even though I know better, I often catch myself doing this. I'm in a conversation with a couple of people <laughs> and I'm looking, I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, I got to go. It's time, you know, it's, my, you know, I'm, I'm late for something or I have a mm-hmm. meeting or whatever. And then all of a sudden I notice my body is like turning toward the door, like I want to get out. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas... You know, the appropriate response is to tell the person, I really am enjoying this conversation and I'd like to continue. And I have a commitment in a few minutes, so I'm going to say goodbye to you. And then just 
just just move on, right? You know, so just mm-hmm. be straight with people rather than feel like you have to keep talking because your body will tell the truth and say, I want to get out of here. So so pay attention to how your body is in communication with somebody. That's another way. Um, and there's probably a lot of little other things. I'm probably forgetting some and I might come up with it. Um, I, I, As you know, from the chapter on interviewing, I talk about how you're always interviewing, that it's, mm. it's never just the formal part of the interview. So one thing you can practice in terms of good manners is assume that whoever you're talking to, whoever you're with, is interviewing you either for a job or for a friend or for somebody who's interesting. And because you never know when you might run into them again or whatever, even if it's a stranger on an airplane that, you know, you're never going to see, it's just good practice. Right. Mm. So uh, when I'm on a plane and if I'm talking to somebody, um, you know, I don't, I don't look at my cell phone or I, I don't, you know, keep my body straight and just kind of talk them out of the side, I'll give them my full attention. And then if, if I'm finished with the discussion, you know, I will make that clear in a respectful manner, you know, and appreciate their time and say, you know, I'm really looking forward to finishing my book. And so I'm going to go do that right now. And I've mm-hmm. never had anybody say, Oh God, you know, I, I thought we were friends or something like that. You know, people appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, Definitely love your examples of, you know, like people tend to do that these days. You're right. Like we try to one up each other with our gratitude and for each other. And it really is something. And I really love those examples as well, again. And I guess one of the main things in your book that when you start off your book is, um, is I think one of the first chapters where you mentioned the um, eight cardinal rules of life that your mom yeah. suggested mm-hmm. yeah and i want to go over the first five rules and the other three if you guys uh, who are listening want to know you can check out donald's book in the description and buy it and i guess let's start off with the first one which says make peace with your past so it won't screw up the present right and i think this does relate to uh, the philosophy of stoicism in some way and with the theme of acceptance. So could you dive in why the theme of acceptance is so important and why focusing on the present is really important as well? Yes. So the first thing that I believe about that, about making peace with your past, is that it does not mean that the past was okay or acceptable or right. Mm -hmm. Uh, So let me give an extreme example if you were raped as a child, that is never right. And there is mm-hmm. nothing good about that. And it can be damaging to anyone psychologically. Yeah. Making peace with your past means that you figured out a way to hold that experience for what it was mm-hmm. on, on one side of you while you're moving forward and have done the work necessary to make sure that the pain and the anger and the intensity of that experience does not come through in your future. So, for example, if I, let's say, was raped as a child and I was a victim of inappropriate sexual touching when I was little, and I and I can visualize the men that did that to me, 
And then later in life, I come across a man that reminds me of that. And all of a sudden, my body gets tense and I and my anger and my issues come back up to the point where I have judged this man that I'm mm. dealing with as I have judged the people who harmed me. I'm saying that I have not made peace with my past because the man that I'm talking with may be the most wonderful person in the world, but I never ever gave them a chance because I did not make peace with the past, meaning I didn't say that was in the history. I've done my therapy work. I realized that my anger was at that individual and not who that individual represents. And so, and I'm just speaking for myself. Other people may, may in their work, may have had a different experience. And so I just want to respect that, that I'm not saying that how I process my past should be the way everybody processes it. They need to work their process with their therapist or counselor, whoever is in their life that's supporting them. So it doesn't mean that I'm saying, oh, well, you know, maybe it was a good idea that I I got, you know, abused or, you know, it made me a stronger person. So that's a good thing. I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that you have to recognize in your manner, in your current manner, you have to recognize how that manner may be continually influenced by things that happen in your past because mm-hmm. everything happened in the past, everything, mm-hmm. including the thought you just had about what happened in the past. That's now past you with mm-hmm. me. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so, so it's history. And I'm not saying that the history is not valid. It is valid. And it lives within your body. That pain and trauma live within your body. That's what's called post-traumatic stress disorder. That's Mm -hmm. real, right? That's real. But there's ways of compartmentalizing it in a way that if if I was suffering PTSD, Yogesh, from Mm -hmm. bad experience and you were to meet me for the first time, chances are you would never know about my painful history because of how I've handled it. Now, in the course of our talking about this, you might say, well, where have you struggled in the past? And tell me about that. I might say, well, when I was a young child, I was accosted by some men and they touched me inappropriately. And that was very painful. And then you're like looking at me like, oh my God, I had no idea. That's what I mean by handling your past. Whereas there are some people that you can come into contact with and you know in an instant, boy, this person is carrying a lot of baggage, right? Mm. This person is carrying a lot of baggage, like who screwed you over, right? Kind of thing. So that's what I mean. That's how I interpret making peace with your past. It, it It is history. It is something to move away from while recognizing that it was still, it's still part of your inner narrative. You just Mm -hmm. don't let that inner narrative control or determine your current manner. Mm. Yeah, that was a great way to put it. Like, especially just turning into like, it's not actually the theme of acceptance, rather the theme of like, as you said, making peace with your past instead of accepting your past. And 
Yeah, that was way better than how I put it. And I guess we can move on to the to the second yeah. mm-hmm. uh, second rule, which says what others think is none of your business. And I think this relates to Stoicism as well, where Marcus Aurelius says, everything we hear is an opinion, not a mm-hmm. fact, and everything we see is a perspective, not a truth. So yeah. could you explain to us why we shouldn't think about what others think about us? Well, ask, I would ask people to consider what do you gain by your concern for what others think about you? What, what's the payoff? You know, if, if, if I said, Yogesh, I have these magical abilities and I happen to know 10 people in your life and they have deep opinions about you. Uh, would you like me to tell you what they are? And then you need to ask yourself, so what if I hear the answer? What what does that do for you? I mean, it, it's it's their head. It's their thoughts. It's their – it doesn't concern you because it's not about you. So you have to understand what other people think about you, Yogesh, is not about you. It's about them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. It, it really says more about them and whatever it is. And it's okay. Now, I want to make a distinction between that and whether somebody coaches you and says, Yogesh, you know, the way you spoke to that person felt arrogant to me. You might want to take a look at that. That's more about your particular manner and how you're showing up and your mm. coach suggesting that you take a look at that. That's not about... Well, you know, the person you talk to thinks you're arrogant. Mm. You see the difference? You know, okay, so they, I'm sure there's a lot of people that think I'm arrogant. I got a big mouth or whatever. And, and that's great. But it's, that's, it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with what they think. So it's a very liberating concept when you disconnect yourself from your obsession with what other people think about you. I mean, are you really going to live your life to have people think well of you? I mean, I don't think people want people to think ill of them. So if you're obsessed with what people think about you, I'm assuming that what you want is to say, well, I want everybody to like me. You're going to live a miserable life doing that. Yeah. You know, like, like Morpheus said in the matrix, free your mind, (laughs) you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Free your mind. Mm. And the freedom is that that it's when you can live and show up authentically, people can see that. And and it doesn't matter if I'm if they're I'm gonna I'm gonna give a talk later today to a, a rotary club and I'm gonna talk about you know my experiences and manners and things like that. And I'm sure mm-hmm. there's some things that I'm gonna say that may not sit well with some of the people. And but I also know that the how I'm presenting what I'm talking about is gonna be very authentic and very genuine. And I think it, someone may say, well, I respectfully disagree with you on that, but they'll probably say, but I respect your right to say what you said and what have you. I mean, that's, that's just my prediction. But the fact of the matter is I don't particularly care what they think. <laughs> mm-hmm. What I care about is for them to think. Let me mm-hmm. say that again. I don't care what they think about me. 
I care that they do think critically about what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I want them to examine critically what I'm saying. It's a pink suit. Remember that? Chapter four, pink yeah. suits. It's a metaphor. Try it on to see what you think because it's unusual, right? to look mm-hmm. at the world through a manner's lens. It's unusual because it's like, well, I just want to do my job and be smart and all that stuff. And I'll say, that's really great. Well, there's some smart people who are in prison. Bernie Madoff and Jeffrey Epstein were not stupid men. They were just criminals. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. They were not stupid. He wasn't stupid unless you define stupid as somebody who rips people off. Okay, well, maybe that's fair. What I'm saying is intellectually and and mathematically and technically, they probably were very smart people. They also Mm -hmm. were criminals because they did bad things to people. And we also know that there are people who are very wealthy who are not happy. Mm. They have all the money in the world, but why why aren't they happy, right? So so this is what I'm asking people to think about critically. You know, whether they judge me for how I do it, all that stuff, that's up to them. So what do people think about? It's not my concern. You know, my concern is my manner and perfecting my manner and being authentic and showing up as honestly as I can for for good. And I do believe there's a moral dimension to manners. Right. There's there's right and wrong and there is good and bad. Right. Mm. That there, 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 there were people I've read stories in the days in the United States during the rise of, 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 of the Ku Klux Klan when they were terrorizing black people post-Civil War. Right. Because they didn't mm. want black people to to rise up and have any kind of power. I've read stories about people some of the mobsters who dragged black people out of jails who were, you know, accused of, you know, winking at a white woman and they were going to string them up where in the Mm. process of hanging him, they called the person they were getting ready to hang, sir. And, Mm. and, you know, they said, would you like to say a final prayer just before they're about ready to hang him up? Mm. So they were being polite. (laughs) (laughs) You can say in some respects they were had good manners up until the mm. point where they strung them up and lit them on fire, right? So mm. uh, there's, a, there's, there's a right and a wrong in all of this as well. So, so, the, so, so the distinction is, and I really do want to come back to rule number two because what I suggest is just as a matter of practice, work on not caring whether or not somebody likes you or not, mm. just, just, you know, they may not like me. If you want to go to the club and wear a pink suit, wear a pink suit. In fact, I suggest you should do that on purpose just to observe how other people are going to observe you and decide whether or not that was that bad. You know, mm. who cares? Right. You know, yeah. I just, I don't care if I wear a plaid shorts and a purple top. You know, I go out. Sometimes I do it just to have fun or I'm too lazy to put anything else. And so people might look at me like, wow, you look silly. Great. You know, 
But when my children were little, we encouraged them to be silly. You know, I have videos of my son wearing, you know, rainbow colored Afro wigs and things like that. And he, he wears dresses and beads and plays musical instruments. And we thought, oh, this is really great. You know, we're we're te- teaching him self-expression and all this stuff. And now all of a sudden when he's bigger, oh, well, son, you shouldn't do all that. Right. You know, that's not cool. Mm-hmm. Whatever. You know. So he's learned to be his own man. You know, he doesn't, my, my kids don't care what other people think, you know, and I appreciate that about them, you know? Mm. Yeah. And again, just like going back to the um, pink suit thing, uh, analogy, it's almost, it's almost like getting out of your comfort zone again. And yes. I think we'll get, we'll get into that, into, I think, um, rule number five. Okay. And so just, Going on to the next rule, the third uh-huh. rule, which you say, um, which I I tend to agree because uh, we we really miss out on this advice when we are in our tough situations. And it says, time heals almost everything. Give it time. So could you tell me how do we exactly stay hopeful and positive at tough times when we let time heal us? Or um, and time can also be a very scary thing. And over time, we become almost different people. And our time tells our journey almost and our story. And our present self shows how well we spent it. How can we reshape our ideology of time into something that is not so scary as well? Yeah, that's uh, and I love how you presented the context of this with what you said. And I really encourage the listeners to to really grasp that Mm. because um i and and this is a tough one because you know it suggests that two things one is if something bad happens if you just wait long enough you know it won't feel as bad Mm. and i think that's i I think there's an element of of truth to that um Mm. You know, so what is healing? You know, healing in a way is like, you know, the other rule about, you know, not screwing up your past, you know, make peace with it, that, that you, 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 there's an old Chinese proverb that you, you know, a relationship is like a China vase, you know, it, once it's broken, it can always be mended back together but the cracks will always be there so Mm. to some degree time is the the mending of the cracks of something that happened at a time in your life but they're always there for you to look at you know the one the one example that i can give is that you know both my mother-in-law and mother died within six weeks of each other unexpectedly. We didn't expect them to pass away. And that was a very painful part of my life. And um, and yet over time, I can still get emotional about my mom and my mother-in-law. And, you know, I go visit her grave and I talk to her and, you know, I can still feel the emotions, but it's not like it was the first week after she died when I was practically in shock. Okay. Mm. Um, I remember the pain I felt. I mean, the physical pain I felt of a young man that uh, I had taken under my wings as a mentor. Uh, uh, I knew his mother and um, 
I was out of town and people apparently were trying to frantically contact us and, you know, they couldn't reach us. And when I got back, what I learned is that this young man had committed suicide. And I remember speaking at his funeral and I remember stopping and saying, I'm just hurting. I'm just, just in pain. So over time, that pain and that wound has healed significantly. I've come to peace with his taking his life. And I've looked at, you know, my own relationship with people who might be in trouble to re-examine what I could do better or different. And in some cases, you can't. So I don't feel that same pain anymore when I think about Darren. I don't don't feel that anymore. Um, And so... Uh, you know, people lose a relationship, right? You know, they get divorced or, you know, they're, they end a long-term relationship with somebody and that could be very painful initially. And so I think this rule says that, um, you know, do, do what you have to do hour by hour and day by day to make it for the next hour, to make it for the next day and know that, uh, as my mom used to say, this too shall pass. And what she meant by that is the pain that you're experiencing right now mm-hmm. yeah, is going to pass. You know, my mother had a mm-hmm. lot of pain in her life, a lot of trauma in her life. I had an older brother who died before I was born. Her her marriage didn't work out and she had uh, severe breast cancer that, you know, really disfigured her body from the surgery. Mm-hmm. So she had a lot, lot of pain, but, you know, you would never really know it because she, she just kind of uh, made peace with it. And she knew over time, you know, that the, the, the short-term pain would, would dissipate. So mm-hmm. um, it's, uh, it, it's not much solace that rule is not solace to anyone who's experiencing a pain right now. So I, as a matter of a manners matter, I would never say to somebody who just lost a child, oh, you'll get over this, give it time. Or someone mm-hmm. whose girlfriend or boyfriend just left them. Mm-hmm. Never say that to somebody, just give it time. Just be empathetic and get the pain and just listen and just be with them. They, what they really want is they just want you to be there and get them to get their pain. They don't want to hear, oh, they know. They know that mm. in, ten, in a year they're going to be different. But right mm. at the moment, you know, they want to cry. They want to scream. They want to mm. grieve. That's what they want and what they need to do. They don't mm. need to be told. Because uh, when people say that, what they're really saying is, I don't want to experience your pain because I don't want to be reminded of my pain. So please get over it because you know you're going to get over it. That's kind of what I think is really going on. So don't say that to people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. That's actually a really great way of saying it. And I guess moving on to the fourth one, and um, which I love and one that I wish I knew earlier when I was a kid. Um, yeah. is that don't compare your, to your life to others and don't judge others. So could you explain to us why we shouldn't compare ourselves to others and how to stop? Because we humans are competitive by nature. Yeah. 
Um, let me start with a recent current example. And I'm just going to tell you the complete truth about this. So people are familiar with who Elon Musk is, right? He's founder yeah. of Tesla, founder of SpaceX. And, you know, I've known about Elon Musk for a while because of the space work that he's done. And I've sort of watched him in public. And I'm going to be very candid that I have been judgmental about his manner. And I, uh, you know, I found him a bit arrogant. I didn't think he was polished. You know, he was no Steve Jobs. He was no Mm -hmm. Tim Cook, you know, and I, and I had these thoughts and I probably expressed them, you know, to some people. And, um, and, and, and in fact, the closest I ever came to being critical about him when I was a senior leader at NASA is that I was in a meeting with the head of the National Science Foundation. And somehow we got on the subject of, you know, diversity. And, and at some point I chimed in and I said, you know, the problem I have with SpaceX is that if you look at what they show on TV in their control room and the people that work in it, it's like no diversity. I mean, there's, you know, mostly young people and they're mostly white, some women, you know, and the head of the National Science Foundation says, well, why don't you tell them that? You know, meaning reminding me that as a senior leader, I have access, which I didn't think I really had. And and so I said, no, nah, you know, I, <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble for that. <laughs> So anyway, the point I'm trying to characterize for people is I was ju- I've been judgmental about him. Mm. Now, I still may be a little judgmental, but something changed. And here's what changed. Do you remember when uh, you may not know this, but he was invited to uh to lead or to uh, to host Saturday Night Live, you know, it's a uh, yeah. a fun show on American TV. And yeah. I actually didn't watch the show; I watched snippets of it. Mm. And apparently, during his monologue, he made the announcement that this was the first time that somebody with Asperger's was hosting SNL. So he was revealing, and it was reported that he has Asperger's. There was something about that that was a wake-up call to me because I realized that I had been judgmental about Elon, and what I didn't know was he had this condition which probably explains his behavior. Mm. Uh, And I felt bad. In fact, I always felt if I ever had an opportunity to see him personally, I would apologize to him, even though he wouldn't know who I am from Adam and he never heard. And I'm sure he's got, he's seen more criticism than anybody. He doesn't, he's one person that really doesn't care what people Mm. think about him, right? (laughs) He is is who he is, right? Most people who are wealthy really could care less what people think about him because they're always going to be subject to criticism. But Mm. that's a mild example of this particular rule. You know, I, I don't know what their journey was about. And part of Elon's journey is he had this condition. And it, I, I don't know the condition really well, but I know people who have Asperger's and I know that they show up and have a manner that's slightly different than what I'm used to. Um, mm. So uh, I, I have, uh, and I, 
there's there's just I remember a, a a short story that I read. I don't know if it was true or if it was just written to make a point about a man that was in a subway with his two young kids, and he was just kind of sitting on the seat, and the kids were just going nuts in the subway and climbing the walls and running over. And finally, one of the passengers was just so irate and said, sir, why can't you control your kids? They're just out of hand. And they just went on and on and on being critical. And the man kind of came to and looked at the person and said, oh, I'm, I'm really, really sorry. Um, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm just not been myself. I just came from the hospital where my wife just died and I'm a little bit of a loss right now. So you see that person who criticized the man for not controlling his kids didn't know that his journey had just started with the fact that he lost his wife. Now, if mm. the person knew that, they might have been a lot more sympathetic about that. So you, you just don't know, right? You don't. Yeah. I mean, we, we criticize people who are privileged and yet we don't know their history might have been you know, replete with difficult times. We criticize people for, you know, being homeless because, you know, why are you homeless? Why are you choosing to do this? And, you know, and you kind of dig into what I call, what was the original sin, right? Mm. You know, you get into their addiction and then you get into their home life and then you figure out that, you know, they hardly ever had a chance. So maybe, because you know something, you can be a little more empathetic with people. And so that's what the, the rule is about is just, you know, some people may rub you the wrong way and some people just you may not like intuitively whatever it is. Um, but ask yourself, you know, what's the possibility that there's more to this story than I know? Mm. Instead of just saying, you know, I just don't like this person. And so I'm not going to, you know, somehow deal with this person at all. Um mm. There's more to the story, and you don't know what their journey is about. You don't know the pain that they've endured. You don't know, um, you know, what may have happened to them. And just like the woman that my friend that I told you when I asked her, is she okay? And she says, I'm fine, you know, to mm. another person who didn't know this couple, they may have taken that at face value. But the fact of the matter was she wasn't fine. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. Because her journey was a journey of intense pain over the loss of her son. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great way to put it. And I guess like what I like to think of it as is when you compare yourself with someone, you know, that has been or, or even judge someone that has been raised differently and has different economical and cultural backgrounds and are perhaps in different conditions is just simply unfair and leads to failure almost. And yes, I guess the only person you can judge and compare yourself to is yourself. Yes. And even then, we all have, you know, days off and, and on. And when difficult times come up, we all react differently. But it's completely fine. And we all look at things differently and interpret things differently. So we should all look forward to just being our best selves and not compare ourselves to others. That's how yeah. I like to think. I, I, I love how you characterize that because that's, as I see it, the one thing you can work on. 
You can't mm. fix other people. Typically, how people change because of you is through being inspired by you, mm. inspired by your journey and what you do. Um, yeah. But I would say that um, if if you want, you know, to be judgmental and critical, turn the lens inwards, but also be a little um, compassionate with yourself. Right? Mm. We can be very critical about ourselves and forget you know, the goodness that we have. And and so you have to remember that, you know, your narrative is not always correct about your own self, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes yeah. you need external people to say, to remind you, you know, you're a good person and you've done good things. Um, you know, don't let it go to your head. Uh, but remember that, you know, you're, you're a work in progress, but also appreciate and, and express gratitude for that which has been done. I mean, some of the best writings that I've seen on on leaders who look at their life in terms of what's been successful then talk about, you know, their their ability to be grateful for where they are and what they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess now we could move on to the the fifth um, mm-hmm. rule. And the final, fifth and final rule. Well, not the final one, but the final one we will be discussing. Okay. And that is stop thinking too much. And it's all right to not know the answers. And in life, there are many moments we are unsure of. And we often miss opportunities due to overthinking. And also because we humans naturally hate the feeling of risk and the feeling of not knowing what is going to yeah. happen. Yeah. And we should instead get out of our comfort zone, as you mentioned in the book, you know, and as you mentioned before, um, try out the pink suit. But I wanted to ask you, um, ask you other than just jumping in and trying to, you know, go about making decisions in life. Um, how do we actually jump out of our comfort zone in general and like go about making decisions in life? Um, one way to do it is if you're asked to do something that you're not used to or normally, uh, or it's not part of what you think you can do, uh, mm-hmm. is to consider your response first as yes, if, rather than no, because. Mm-hmm. Yes, if, rather than no, because. Um, I did a training, not a training, I did a detail um, as I was being groomed to be a senior leader at NASA Mm -hmm. at one of our NASA facilities in Houston, Texas, famously known for Mission Control, the Johnson Space Center. And I didn't know exactly what I was going to be doing there. I knew the organization I was going to be in. But when I, it was a project office for um, NASA's current space vehicle, the Orion space vehicle. Hmm. And uh, when I got there, one of the things I was asked to do was to write the project plan for the space vehicle. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at the project manager and I said, 
Uh, it's been a long time since I've taken an engineering class, and I even changed my major. And the last time I did any engineering, we were using slide rules, not calculators. I said, I'm not sure, mm. you know, I'm capable of this. So that was kind of a no because answer. And mm. fortunately for me, he said, um, well, you know how to synthesize things and you know how to write. And you really just have to piece together like 25 sub plans. And there's people that are responsible for that. So I think you could do this. And so when you put it that way, um, then I was able to do it. And I was, um, I was actually amazed that I was able to do what I would have previously said. There's no way that I could have done that. So instead of saying, yes, I will do that if I get support on how to do this well, you know, I started off with no because. So one way you can get out of your comfort zone is if someone says, you know, I'd like for you to learn a new language. You know, let's just say your coach is suggesting this to you, that the answer is yes, if. You know, yes, if I get support on how to manage my time to do this. Yes, if I have access to people is how I see it. Or, mm. you know, so so in other words, you, you, you throw yourself into the arena without knowing how it's going to turn out, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're uh, – so that that's just one way. And and I mean, it's not a suggestion that any time somebody asks you to do something, you should just immediately say do it. I mean, if someone says, Donald, I want you to go parachuting, you know, my answer is not no because. My answer is just no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you know, I, I that doesn't interest me, you know, mm. uh, parachuting. It just – I don't find that interesting. If If someone says, you know – I really believe that for you to be a good senior leader, that you need to learn um, financial management or whatever it is. And let's say I don't have any history in that. You know, my answer ought to be yes if uh, I get some guidance about how to do this. And if, you know, so I'm nervous now because now I'm doing something that I'm not schooled in or skilled in. Mm -hmm. um, the other, the other way, and I'm not, I don't feel like I'm giving a great answer on this. I, I will say that that um, there's something liberating about just trying things out that are a little different than you might be used to, just to see how it turns out. Because now that you don't care what other people think about you, because it's none of your business, that if somebody reacts like, oh, my God, look at that idiot, you know, trying to speak his horrible Spanish or whatever it is. You don't, you don't, you care that you want to perfect your ability to speak a language, but you don't care about their judgment about your current abilities. Okay. Mm. So you just take it on. Um, and you, uh, are, and you do it as a way to be more skillful in liberating yourself from the limitations that you've placed on yourself so that mm -hmm. you realize there's a tremendous amount you could do um, if you weren't fearful um, about not getting the results that you want. And so mm -hmm. I, I, I think there's, 
it, so it's not so much taking on something because in and of itself it's, it's the right thing to do for some reason. It's just practicing doing something different because, you know, it's like if someone says, well, I should add swimming to my repertoire of exercise and I don't really a swimmer and I don't, you know, whatever. Well, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to try it once just to try it out. You know, I, I might like it, you know, I say, Hey, this is, this is kind of fun, you know, but you know, I have to do a little extra work to find the pool and to figure out the times and get some trunks. I have to be okay with people looking at my body if I'm not too happy with its current shape and realize, well, I don't really care what people think. And that's kind of the funny thing. You know, you know, I used to be really concerned about my shape of my body because I weighed more than I thought I should. And, you know, I'd go on the beach and I'd walk around in my shorts and I'm wondering, oh, my God, everyone must think that I'm a big slob. Nobody cares. <laughs> and I've seen people out there who are in worse shape than I am. And, and I, I say – more power to them. They don't care what people think. They just mm -hmm. do it. So, you know, try things on. Just try things on. You know, maybe there's some things that you've always thought about doing, but, you know, you weren't sure you could do it. You know, yes, I will do this if I can get the right support to help me through this. There's an expert for everything. There's an app for mm -hmm. everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a great way to put it. You related back to the second rule as well. And I guess... Now, just to wrap up the episode, I would like to ask you one last question, like I always do at the end of each episode, is to relate the topic that we talked about today back to a favorite quote of mine. And I want to know your opinion on this quote, which links to the topic we talked about earlier, which is the importance of manners. So this quote is by Marcus Aurelius, and it says, external things are not the problem. It's your assessment of them, which you can erase right now. So what is your opinion on this quote and how does it apply to your life and the work that you do? I gave an example in the book about this exact thing. And maybe it was Aurelius that inspired this. Um, if, if it's raining really hard outside, why do people characterize that as bad weather? Why, why, why is the weather bad? It, it, the weather is the weather, but yeah. we, what we've labeled it is bad, probably because what, um, if we go outside, our hair could get wet, our clothes can get wet, it might take longer to commute or whatever, but we, we put these labels on things. The weather is just the weather. Mm. It's our interpretation of the weather that often drives our emotional reaction to what we're doing in the moment, right? So mm. if you wake up and it's raining hard and he goes, oh, God, the weather is awful. You know, it's windy and it's rainy. And so now all of a sudden you're in this strange mood, right? Because you've labeled that the weather is bad. And I remember watching how how I shifted on this whole thing about the rain and the weather, Yogesh, was I remember watching a movie once where a woman uh, was a cancer patient. And there was this mm. whole movie was about her dealing with her cancer and all this. And then there was a scene in the movie where they pretty much said to her that, you know, they felt with the test that, you know, she was cancer free. And there was a scene where she walks out of the hospital and it's raining 
and she had her headscarf on because she had lost her hair from the chemo, and she just pulled her headscarf off, and she just looked up into the sky with her hands open, and she was just relishing in the rain. Mm. And what I got from that experience is this is a person who was facing death. She was facing death, and Mm. now... She's facing life and rain is a part of life and she was grateful for it. And so Mm. I, I now certain weather conditions can be inconvenient and, you know, there's flooding going on in parts of the U S there's heat waves going on. I'm not suggesting that it's, that it's uh, doesn't have an impact on us. I'm suggesting that we don't have to interpret it. We don't have to label it as, as, as good or bad. It's just the way it is. And I would like to suggest that's true for a lot of what we experience. Um, mm. He's mean. He's ugly. He's a terrorist. He's a fascist. I mean, we have all these labels for things and mm. they do things to us. And I think in many cases, they cloud our ability to engage people or engage events in a very open-minded and um, authentic way uh, mm-hmm. that, that it tends to make us inauthentic in our relationship. And that tends to govern our manner. And our manner becomes, you know, the person who is angry about the rainy weather, right, or angry about the wind or angry about the world and they walk around being angry about things. Mm. And so that's how their manners are affected by that. So I think Aurelius's uh, statement is one to be read and reread a lot and um, is very Mm. appropriate on that. Yeah, that's a great way. That's a great example as well. And I guess, again, um, Donald, thanks again for coming on to the show. It's been a great and fun time for me because just interviewing to you today, I have received like, um, I've just realized how much more fun it is to interview someone who has great manners. And it's, <laughs> you know, you're welcome. You're welcome. I've gained so much wisdom from this interview. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I appreciate you reaching out and, uh, let's, let's stay in touch. And to all the yeah. the listeners out there, um, enjoy your manners journey. Um, it's, it's liberating and, um, um, and reach out to me. Um, I'd like to talk to people and respond to people who want to continue this discussion. So thank you for that. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah.